data is a material that we have, is a lens that we have to filter our reality through, but is ultimately an abstraction of our reality. And I think data is always subject to an interpretation. Data is not as objective as we think it is. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Georgia Lupi. Georgia is an information designer and partner at renowned design consultancy, Pentagram. Born and raised in Italy, she followed up her master's degree in architecture with a PhD in design at Politecnico di Milano. In 2011, she co-founded Accurat, an internationally acclaimed data-driven design firm. She is the co-author of Dear Data and of the new interactive book, Observe, Collect, Draw, a visual journal. Fast Company named her one of the 100 most creative people in business in 2018, when she also joined MIT Media Lab as a director's fellow. And her TED Talk on her humanistic approach to data has over 1 million views. So get ready to fall in love with data. Here's Georgia. My name is Georgia Lupi. I am an information designer and a partner at Pentagram. I work with data and I love working with data because data is the most interesting and beautiful material we now have to play with. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I am so fascinated and I can't wait to get into that. But I always like to begin at the beginning. Take me back to where you grew up, what you were like as a child, your family dynamic, and what fascinated you as a child. Like, how did you interpret and absorb your surroundings? Sure. I'm Italian. I grew up in a little town close to Modena, which is another little town in the center of Italy. I was an only child and my parents were also both only children. So really a kind of like a small family. And I spent a lot of time by myself. Growing up in Italy, I think I'm saying that in retrospect, but then you really realize how you are surrounded by history, by particularly interesting aesthetical architecture features and everything that is around you, I think, talks and breathes about the past and history. Uh, so I think that that in general influenced the way that I started to think about design uh, later. Uh, but one anecdote that I always like to say about uh, when I was growing up is that I loved spending a lot of time on my grandmother's tailor shop. So she was a seamstress and every day I would uh, lay out on the table her belongings and tools like buttons, threads, ribbons, pieces of fabric 
fabrics uh, every day, organized and structured visually according to a rule that I was making up for myself, such as sizes, colors, if a button had one hole or two holes. So really thinking like a data collector in a way. Yes, totally. (laughs) (laughs) And was that sort of supported and regarded as novel and cute that you were organizing buttons according to your own rules? And Not really. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, every time my grandmother felt like, why do you need to do it every day? And my mom, I think, felt that I was maybe a little compulsive about that. But, you know, ultimately, I I really had a lot of fun. And I remember that when I learned how to write, maybe, I don't know, around the age of four and six, that it was every day uh, writing little labels for my grandmother to really interpret it, like to understand the rational behind it. And I think I really remember the pleasure of organizing these things. It was more, I don't know, it was more fun to me than playing with Barbies or anything else. What do you think was encoded into your DNA or your spirit that you were born with that that made you need to organize the world around you? (laughs) That's an interesting question. Even right now, I take a lot of inner pleasure from outer order. I like organizing things. I like having things neatly put together, even clothes, my drawers, anything. And I think there's something that gives me a lot of inner peace when things are laid out according to something that I am controlling, (laughs) which can also talk a lot about like the tendency of controlling and wanting to control too much. This is what I'm thinking right now about the overlap that I have between rigor rules and numbers and like scientific structures and expressing myself creatively. So also, I take a lot of pleasure to see things visually organized in series of uh, elements. Even when I go to museums, I'm like so attracted and drawn to projects that are made in series and to repetitions and to things that really kind of like, you know, repeat themselves visually. So I guess I don't know what's in my DNA about that, but I think it's definitely in between numbers and images, logic and intuition. Sometimes there's a lot of tension between the two. So as much as right now, it might sound fascinating. I guess it sometimes is also a little problematic. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm wondering how this all sort of evolved in your teenage years. Those are typically unstable times as we're giving rid of our childhood and giving way to an adult identity. For me, as for many of us, teenagers, you're even things in like kind of years that you might want to get rid of and not think too much about. I was born in this little town in Italy that was also kind of like far away from the major centers like Milan, Venice, Florence or Rome. And I think in my teenagers years, I started to feel that life was going to be and was somewhere else. So I started to kind of feel out of place and with a lot of antsiness and anxiety to just explore other places. But, you know, you cannot really do it when you're in high school. And I think I took the rebel side of how one can be a teenager in the world. And I started to be really involved in the punk rock scene and heavy metal scene in my little town. I I used to play the piano. So then I started to play the keyboard in an heavy metal band. Uh, I love I love this. <laughs> uh, turning all of my wardrobe into black clothes to the point that really I remember you would open my my closet and it's just, it's just black, like two things that could be exactly the same in one another. And I like the idea of playing, of performing. Uh, at the same time, I started doing ballet when I was a little kid. And then obviously then when I was in high school and a teenager, I 
didn't want to do ballet anymore and I did contemporary dance. And so I think the performative aspect of my teenager life is something that I remember a lot, but I, but I really, really remember being really antsy and really uncomfortable, intense in a way in which I think I really needed to explore something else. That's, that's the feeling that I remember the most, a feeling out of place. Well, I can relate to that. When you start to realize there's something more, you just have this like straining, this chomping at the bit to get out there and start exploring and figuring out what's next. Did you head to Milan to study architecture? Actually, no. I studied architecture in Ferrara, which is somehow close to my hometown. I was thinking to go to Milan. I went to Milan after for my PhD, but 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 really, as a matter of fact, Ferrara is known as when I studied a few years ago. I uh, was known to be the let's say the best and the most recognized architectural university in Italy because it was kind of smaller. Imagine that in Milan Politecnico, uh, the architecture uh, university, you know, you'll have classes of like almost a thousand people. So, you know, you couldn't really benefit from big desks to write and to have the attentions of the professor as opposed to, you know, these definitely smaller because they had a test for uh, being admitted, a uh, university that I went into where we were 125 with big rooms and a lot of professors just like giving us attention. And I'm talking about big rooms because at the time we were all drawing on these big tables, uh, really drawing by hand and we adopted drawing on CAD and computer only at the end of my circle of study. So that was seen as uh, a real plus uh, of studying there. And also, you know, at the time, as much as, you know, I talked about how much I wanted to leave, at the time I was so involved with my little music scene and dance scene that felt kind of like interesting at least for a few more years stick around there. I'm starting to see how the pieces of your life are coming together. I can kind of guess why you studied architecture. If you derive inner pleasure from outer order, I can see you wanting to organize cities even <laughs> yeah, also i think at this point i'm really honest it was also a way to postpone choosing what I was going to do when I was growing up in the sense that for me architecture was almost a non-choice in the sense that I was like drawn to the world of art and design but in high school I studied at a scientific high school and so you know really the passion for math geometry and, and structure I mean I didn't want to lose that but at the same time studying say mathematics or chemistry I mean it wasn't my thing so I think once more kind of like merging these two areas studying architecture also knowing that it's not really likely that I would become an architect because at least in Italy, many people who then graduate in architecture like end up being, you know, fashion designers, photographers, anything else. So I think it was a way to be like, I'm interested by the overlapping of creativity and order. Uh, but at the same time, I want to just like keep exploring what I want to do for a little longer. Clearly, you're thriving in the academic framework, though, if you decided to study architecture and then get a PhD, you're not ready to leave academia necessarily, you're getting a lot of sustenance from it. Can you kind of talk about what that was like for you? So I actually started to study for my PhD a few years after I graduated because I graduated in 2006 and now I'm definitely aging myself. <laughs> but then uh, I started to work in the, let's say, interaction design field, moved to Milan for a job actually to work at Interaction Design Lab, which interestingly enough was one of the uh, spin-off of the Ivrea Olivetti big uh, academic movement. Uh, but like Interaction Design Lab was uh, the, let's say, the 
design spin-off of that. So I started to work there. Then after I actually co-founded my company in 2011, Accurate, uh, that we can talk about, then I also started a PhD in design. And I think it was because like definitely I gravitated towards design right away after I graduated, interaction design. But I felt that I didn't really have any formal design training because, you know, architecture was actually different and especially interaction design and communication design and design that is not about objects, uh, but it's really about the way that you communicate information was something that I felt I needed to, in a way, get a bit of background on as at the same time I was actually practicing and, and founding my own company. So from 2011 for the next few years, I actually was working really 24-7 because doing a PhD and having your own business, it's a lot. But I think many, many of us, especially in that moment when you're 24, 25, 27, I mean, we're so eager to just figure out who we are in the world according to our curiosities and passions that I, I don't even remember being overworked in a way. I was just very motivated. Wow. Those are two really sort of audacious things, though, to start at the same time. So you're fueled clearly by just an insane motivation and hunger to learn more. And at the same time, you're so invested in this type of work that you founded your own company. So let's talk about Accurate. Like, yeah. tell me what that's about and what kind of projects you did that, that shaped you as well as you shaping the world around you. Totally. So uh, we started Accurate in 2011. And just for the context, then I moved to New York in 2012, uh, still still working uh, with my company, trying to find American clients for the company. So I only had a little over a year to be in Milan with my partners at the time and the few designers that we hired. And right after, I mean, really soon after, we started working remotely with them. At the time, also one of my partner was my partner in life. It's now my ex-husband. We're like so, so close together and we still collaborate. So all, all for the best. But at the same time, I think also the passion and motivation for working all the time came from the fact that also my partner in life was invested in the business and the creation of this uh, way of seeing data and data visualization. So I think we were really just like fueling each other with like working at evenings and figuring it out. I remember that, you know, I really didn't have a lot of other interests besides working, which I mean, it can, it can sound a little dry, but at the time uh, I was really excited. And, you know, when we started Accurate, we had a good rate opportunity. So the main Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera, started to issue a Sunday cultural supplement called La Lettura, which is translated as the act of reading and spending time reading. And one of the editors at the time wanted to have a weekly column called Visual Data, where one of the, say, one of the article of the piece of information that was presented was actually done through a data visualization. And we have worked for Corriere della Sera for almost two years. So every week going and look for data in like cultural or, or society relevant topics, uh, building our own data set and then translating it into a data visualization that every time had a different visual language. And we really um, made it a goal for ourselves to explore what can be done in data journalism if we go beyond the bar charts and the pie charts and really try to shape a visual experience in a way with data. And I really feel that that was the 
project that shaped the rest of my path because I was working closely to Simone, the other one of my partner, who is a sociologist. And so coming to data really with this qualitative drive to look for causes and deep messages and using data not really as a way of quantifying reality, but, but more as a descriptor for reality. Also coming from architecture, I started to just shape this architecture of the visualizations in a way that probably is not very orthodox for data visualizations, just really because it wasn't coming from the field. That was the beginning of Accurate. And I think it really is still shaping the way that I see data nowadays. Well, when I was researching you, I, I found it so compelling that you described these projects for the journal as visual narratives where your imperative was to create nonlinear storytelling that was as thoughtful as the essays. So you're using data like language, you're using it like poetry, and you're using it in a way that allows somebody to kind of find their own path and discoveries within the data. It feels so wonderful to be recognized by data instead of reduced by data. Absolutely. Isn't it fascinating? And I love to think about, for example, in this case, data visualizations, not as a way to simplify reality, because reality is complex. And who am I to just really try and simplify it and narrow it down to two charts? I mean, it is a way to get access to complexity in a way. And this is also why many of my projects, especially when I can ask for some sort of like engaging and attention from the readers. So many of my projects look dense, look very rich of information. But then I think the amazing role of the designer is to provide clarity, which again, is not simplified but it's like working with visual hierarchies and like and visual entry points and actually really building and designing keys that can be uh, the way for everybody to find their own path through the data. I'm like so passionate about these. I, I, I think everybody should just love data. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that you're so passionate about it because we do need an interpreter. I, I don't think that everybody else has the capacity to take such overwhelming amounts of complexity and find ways through it. And the thing that I love about your work is you're not finding a singular conclusion with the data. You're finding like layers and overlaps and patterns. And depending on the rules you apply to it or the organization or categorization you apply to it, it can be different. It can tell different stories. It's the application of those different sets of rules that allow you deeper understanding of what the data could possibly be representing. You really hit a point here, and I think that these can lead us to even talking about what data is and what data is not, because you made such a great point. I mean, data is not the end of the conversation, and data is not finding the solution to our questions. To me, you know, data is a material that we have, is a lens that we have to filter our reality through, but it's ultimately an abstraction of our reality. And I think data is always subject to an interpretation. Data is not as objective as we think it is because it has always been collected by somebody. And even if it comes from a sensor, well, a human being designed the sensor and decided what to collect and what to leave out. So the more that we can see data as an intriguing and interesting I'm not really particularly liking the word that I'm about to use, like storytelling material, but, you know, for a lack of a better word, it's like really a way that we have to filter our reality through and then to present it back through design. And obviously having data is definitely better than not having data for decision making purposes. But like many times we're missing data that are not accounted into the data set as, as, as missing data. We don't know how this data is collected and these needs to be taken into account when the data 
are interpreted. So that's why I feel, you know, this human life that data has is the one that we should focus more. So you are an advocate for data humanism. Can you tell me what you mean by that? So I, I kind of came up with the term data human, <laughs> to be really honest. It's, it's one of these things where I was trying to describe the way that I interpret data and the way that I approach data. And also because I needed to sort of like also come up with the, the big idea around my TED talk. I mean, at some point that terms data humanism came up and people started to engage with it and to be curious about it, saying, huh data and humanism and so I actually needed to find a definition for it and right after I think I started to, to just start thinking about what are the premises that I would like everybody to to think about the data word and so data humanism for me is a way to always connect numbers to what they stand for which are once more our lives our imperfect messy and human lives it's a way to say that uh, every time that we talk about data we should not only talk about the numbers but include as much context as we can to how the numbers have been collected and to what is around the numbers, the why, the where, the what, and not only the how much in a way. And also then that when we do represent these numbers, we should focus on what the numbers represent and not necessarily, again, dump them down all the time into these like three or four charts that we usually use as if all the work could be reduced into three visual model of charts. And so again, experiment with languages that might not be super familiar to the eye, but that can really, I think, depict and, and embed all of the complexity around the data. And in this case, I really always like to remind people that it's not that we were born like knowing how to read a bar chart or a map. So there's a lot that we can do in terms of teaching and educating people to appreciate also the richer ways to represent data because we are faithful to, again, once more, the complexity and the nuances of data. Um, and so, you know, around there, I started to just really play around this idea of data humanism, which I feel it's uh, it's also something interesting because we're not used to uh, put together the world of science and data with the world of actual humanities. But we should be. I mean, I feel like that is where we need the most sort of cross-pollination right now. And I think that's what you're advocating for with data humanism, too. I've always felt really strongly that STEM education should also include arts education because it's the creative application of this that is going to help drive the novel solutions and the innovation. But I also think the creative and human understanding, the transcendent, the ineffable, the empathy with the human condition, all of that needs to be filtered through the data so that we don't keep reducing people in a way that, that dehumanizes them. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're a data humanist, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I do think of this podcast as a form of qualitative research. And so thank you for being a subject. Anytime. <laughs> I'm gathering data right now. So you're a partner at Pentagram. You coined data humanism and gave a powerful TED Talk. You are clearly passionate about the mission that you're on. What does that look like and feel like on the day-to-day from both the practical and sort of evolutionary perspectives. So, well, I joined Pentagram as a partner, well, a little over two years ago. And obviously, you know, in these two years, things happened and, uh, and with, with COVID and has been remote most of the time up until recently. The trajectory shifted a little because there was a lot of, I think, my personal efforts in the past year that was actually just like keep 
keep it together, keep the team together, figure out a way to still get <laughs> clients, even though, for example, I was very much focusing on in- installation in the physical space right before the pandemic. And obviously everything got like, you know, shelved, everything that was in the physical space got really uh, put on hold. Obviously, as in any business, there's a lot that it's about, I think, like figuring it out and figuring out the financial and the more organizational and, and management um, issues in a way. Um, but I think for me, joining Pentagram is a really exciting, let's say, next chapter of my work life because with Accurate, which is still up and running, I'm still collaborating with them. Uh, with Accurate, m- most of the times in the last years, we focused on also business to business projects with data. So working with, say, marketing department, but really also IT department and department of big companies that needed to work with the data of the very company. So kind of like more internal projects that I think was great because it helped us build a software development capabilities and it helped us scale the company. But personally, I've always been more intrigued to projects with data that could touch, say, the final customer, the visitor of a museum, the the client and the customer of a product. And so in a way, I think Pentagram, for me, was a challenge. Like, how can I use the language of data as we're, you know, we're actually defining data as a language to create uh, campaigns and, you know, even projects uh, of, of a kind that we can like wear and see every day? How can I use even data to create brand identities or activations in the physical space? And so still a thing that I'm trying to explore. So how do I integrate what I do actually with what Pentagram does and has been doing for the past 50 years, which is in general, if you think about it, communication design uh, and communication design that for the scale of some of the projects that my partners have worked on, communication design, it can really influence the way that we see our society and our culture. So, you know, obviously it is an incredible opportunity that I have that I'm also still really, again, trying to figure out how it looks like. I mean, I think that most of the times when you hear people talking about their past and their career and maybe even hearing me speaking, it feels like, you know, everything seems so planned out one step after another with a great plan in the beginning. But at the same time, and this is definitely true for me, there's just a lot of like figuring it out every day and and following your intuitions and following your curiosities and uh, thinking at the same time at the day by day and how to survive this deadline tomorrow as, as, as well as, you know, what would I like to do in the next month and years? But it's the constant back and forth uh, and, and, and checking with reality and, and aspirations that I think will bring you to the next step. So that's really where I'm at right now. I like that. You, you painted a picture of zooming out and then zooming back in, uh, zooming out on the where you want to generally point yourself in what direction, zooming back into the practical. I think so many creatives, they stumble over themselves when they think there's supposed to be a plan. And I just want to reinforce that there is no plan. There's no plan. You, you're making it up every day. The only thing you're doing is using your creativity and your intuition to navigate that pretty astutely based on your skill set. Absolutely. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. 
There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I really want to talk about your creative process. I think when people hear data design or information designer, there's an assumption that you're working purely in algorithms and and filtering lots of numbers through computer programs and things. Mm. But your process, I don't think, looks like that. Tell me what it does look like. (laughs) Yes, I do draw and sketch a lot with data. (laughs) And I'm lucky enough that I have people who work with me that also, you know, really live and breathe by crunching numbers and algorithms. And so I think I thrive a lot on collaborations, especially because, again, once more, I am a designer and I'm not a computer scientist and not a software developer. I have learned in the past 12 plus years to really actually collaborate with people who are amazing and great at analyzing numbers and actually at like making interactive experiences with these numbers. But like my process really is very analog and it, it, it starts from asking a lot of questions in the very beginning to figure out if the data that I'm presented with in any given projects are the right data to represent. And most of the time, the process involves going to do more data research and adding, uh, let's say, contextual details and outside stories in a way to the data that might be the data that a client presents me with. Some other times I really don't have any data in the beginning. And so the process is really analog to just even craft data sets from the story of people, from books, from, you know, anything that you can think about that can be a topic of an installation, for example, or, you know, a communication project. And then I think uh, the more I get deep and with my team, we get deep into the data and understanding what can be the angles that are interesting. So, for example, just you know, to make it very clear, is it a story that we want to tell chronologically? Is it a story that has a grouping component when we want to highlight, you know, categories? Is it a story about a ranking in a way? Is it a story that has a geographical component? Well, then I think we really and I really start sketching um, and sketching depending obviously on the data, but also on the very output because I spent from working for magazines to interactive installations to again, installations in the physical space to even once I designed a fashion collection. So, you know, definitely the final material when the data visualization will be manifested on influences a lot the way that we sketch out the what I can call visual model. And then obviously there's the, uh, there's the final part, which is making it into the final details that sometimes involves doing it digitally. Sometimes I have been like, you know, developing projects that are hand-drawn from the beginning to the end. Uh, some other times, obviously, then there's development involved because uh, there are interactive experiences with data. So, I mean, in a way, the process is kind of linear, even if it sort of like changes all the time in terms of the type of outputs that I'm working for and, and the goals, obviously. I always say that there's such a spectrum between designing these rich narratives where you need to just like sketch a lot of data layers and like projects that are more straightforward when you're designing for immediate decision making. And definitely you can ask, say, a pilot who's landing a plane to read the legend on their dashboard, you know, so it's all, it always, always depends on the goal. Well, that makes sense to me. As you're describing this, I'm seeing kind of a visual of my own of all of this data coming in. You're like this analog human filter that the data comes in and gets 
you know, interpreted and then is reinterpreted out into whatever the end project is. You've been saying this all along, but you're the human in the <laughs> data <Yeah>. humanism. <laughs> but you do it in a really human way. You, you you put yourself into it literally by, you know, bringing it in through your brain and out through your hands. It's very embodied. I mean, if you think about it, and just to get into the day by day of our like days and how they look like at Pentagram, I mean, there's nothing more fascinating to me that for every project, uh, needing to learn about a completely different subject and topic. And you really need to learn, I think, a little more than maybe you would do. I mean, maybe you're supposed to learn a little more than what you would do for designing, say, a logo or a brochure or, you know, anything that is not deep, deep into the data. But I mean, I love this aspect that every project for me is learning about a completely new subject, a completely new topic. And like, to the point that all of the times I'm like, so immersed uh, in, in whatever I'm working on that I bring it out in my life. I mean, it's literally so much of really, as you mentioned, embodying yourself in the topic and in the data, like breathing this data before, before sketching it. I find it very fascinating. Okay, so that actually leads into my next question, which was, do you become affected by the data? Of course you do. How would you not? How do you yourself personally, like, make sure that you're investigating, integrating, evolving and expanding your own awareness of the human experience, your own experience of being human, so that your humanist approach to data is continually expanding? Wow, this is a philosophical question, I think. But working with clients, I think there's always this like external check-in that keeps you faithful, I think, to the very message and to how the data needs to somehow be interpreted according to experts that are definitely, you know, let's say really subject matter experts. And so I think the collaborative aspect with uh, whoever is commissioning me a project that really knows dig deep about their topic, it's what makes me think about the data, let's say, in the right way for that particular project. When I work on personal projects that are self-initiated, and I've worked on many that really deal with personal data, personal data about myself or about people that I was collaborating with, well, then it really gets into the very human and personal aspect, which is what is that you want to discover about yourself and share about yourself through the lens of data. I tend to see a lot of the world through data and I track things like, you know, when I'm dealing through even any physical illness, I track my symptoms and I track all of the context around it. I mean, it can be really, it can become a little obsessive. I mean, even when at like 38 years old, I started dating again, I was like thinking about my dating life as sort of like this evolving, very qualitative and human, beautiful data set in a way, which I mean, I know it might sound like a little creepy, but (laughs) you know, it's just a way for me, like thinking about it in a different way. It's my way of journaling. I just journal in spreadsheets and I'm not really doing very well in free form journaling. So if you think about data collection that way, which is this systematic way of journaling with a structure, I think, I hope that uh, right away starts to feel more human um, in the process. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, playing keyboards in a heavy metal band and dancing in your youth. And part of your work now involves a lot of speaking appearances, workshops, lectures, writing books that are kind of of a personal or hand drawn nature. Dear Data is the book that I'm referring to the Mm -hmm. postcards that you swapped. And you know, there's a performative aspect to this. And, and I'm a firm believer that passion is contagious. And your passion for your subject comes through 
in all of these examples where you yourself have to be the sort of vehicle for sharing this information. Tell me about that for you and how you approach being both the information and the talent at the same time. (laughs) So when I was asked to start doing speaking engagements almost 10 years ago, I mean, I just couldn't say no. I was scared and terrified. And it was also, I remember at the time, like my first speaking engagement in English. And so I was really terrified. But then, you know, I went into the stage in Minneapolis at this amazing festival called IO, um, that is a media art festival. And uh, I was there surrounded by all my heroes in a way when I when I came to this field. Um, and I think this, uh, something switched uh, right away when I got into that stage that was exactly what was motivating me to play the keyword stage or to dance like starting to stop thinking about, oh my God, I'm going to fail. But thinking about I'm going to enjoy and I'm going to enjoy because this is a moment that I have to share things that might inspire somebody. And I think if you start seeing all of these public appearances, such as talks um, or anything that you want to really share with the world through yourself and through the way you speak as ways to possibly touch somebody's chords, inspire somebody, or just really share what you're passionate and motivated about, I think it started to get less scary. And uh, and it really starts to become an integral part of the way that you even interpret your work. Because what I've learned then is that through putting together a talk and through putting together, you know, essays and books, it's a way to reflect on my work that I wouldn't have if I didn't have to stop and talk about it in a different way. So I think to me, it's this constant, I'm making because I feel like making and because I'm following my intuitions, but then you know what, I need to just like figure out a way to talk about it. I want to be able to explain the very choices I made and the reasons why I did it. And you know, that becomes a further layer, I think, of exploration and investigation about why I do what I do. I've also started to realize that when you're on a stage and, you know, many people are terrified of being there, maybe they're terrified because there's this weird belief that people that are in the audience wants you to fail, but that's the opposite. Everybody wants you to succeed when you're on stage. And so if you start from there and when you make a mistake, stumble for a word, a slide doesn't work. If you just like accept that this is what it is and nobody's going to judge you for that. I mean, everything becomes a bit more enjoyable, I think. I think you're so right. Just the attitude switch that this is not a hostile audience. This is a friendly audience. It changes the environment from one where you're in battle to one where you're just having fun. Totally. You know, when you were describing sharing your work in that way, it reminded me of, of cooking because you had to you have to prepare what you've been working on for, for other people to consume. And so it needs to be digestible, it needs to taste good, (laughs) and it needs to be fun while you're eating it. Totally. It needs to be appealing. Well, I'm glad that you view that as as a part of your work, because that's an essential part of disseminating, I think, these really innovative ideas. You know, not everybody can consume these ideas as readily through, let's say, academic texts. But now with the ability to sort of do a, a search and see some of your previous talks or or something, we have the option to wrap our heads around this kind of innovative thinking in a way that can really touch us when we're ready for it. You know, at the time that we're open to this, we can find it. 
Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I guess also I should say that I, uh, I I really do feel very, very lucky because I've had a lot of opportunities to share my work um, in the past and still have. And uh, and it's a blessing. It's a great, great opportunity. So I, I also I mean, I also know that I'm particularly lucky that um that I started to be invited at conferences. And I think there's also an interesting aspect here, which I, I mean, I know for a better fact, that in the very beginning, especially 10 years ago, some of the tech conferences that are the first one that I spoke at that invited me at, they might have invited me because they liked my work, but also because they needed some gender balance. And there were a lot of male, you know, speakers, but not a lot of female speakers about data and tech. And, you know, honestly, I got lucky because I was in that particular bracket. And I'm also really glad that I was uh, maybe in the beginning of a scene with then many, many other women uh, got invited and started to, you know, be more prominent on the tech and data scene. It's really, really about opportunities. And I think I've been many times in my life uh, in the right place at the right moment. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, maybe that's true. And I'm glad you were lucky. But I'm also glad you took those opportunities and did what you did so that you can lay the groundwork for more women. So <laughs> high fives. High five into you as well. Which I think you had similar experiences in your career in a way. Yes, yes, definitely. I have a question. Have you ever done a self portrait? In data? In data. Oh, well, many of them, if you think about it. We can define self-portrait, but even thinking about the Dear Data project that was this year-long data collection that Stephanie Pozovic, a friend of mine now and an amazing information designer, uh, the two of us collaborated to get to know each other through our data. And so we sort of like build 
two self-portraits in 52 weeks, mapping all of the aspects of uh, our personalities, the work we would use, our activities, our surroundings with weekly data collections about a different topic that then we would uh, use to send uh, a data a data postcards around across the ocean because she lives in London and I live in New York. And we used the language of personal data collection to really get to know each other. And in a way, I think building two self-portraits in data by means of 52 like layers of data to share with the other person. So I think for me, the year of the year data is definitely the most thorough uh, data self-portrait of myself that I could possibly build. It's a moving snapshot of your life in data, um, hand-drawn, and it's, and it's incredible because it's each week deals with like smells or eavesdropping. It takes you in to like these moments that, that as we hurry through our lives that we forget to pay attention to. And so I loved thinking about you spending a whole week just really dialing in and attuning to all the different smells that it, came into your senses. It's been amazing, honestly, Amy, just really for one year. I mean, it's been really intense, really, really intense. And many times I think both Stephanie and I just asked ourselves, why did we even sign up for something like these? But, but then, you know, the attention that you are forced to pay to the mundane aspects because you want to collect them, it has been really a, a huge exercise in self-awareness, I have to say. So it's, uh, it's been really great. Okay, so you have said, we will ultimately unlock the full potential of data only when we embrace their nature and make them part of our lives, which will inevitably make data more human in the process. Can you, can you break that down? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that like by giving you a few examples uh, of how I, I see data as this lens and filter that we can use to parse our reality through and then a design material to tell experiences through, I think that that is another way to say that if we start seeing data not has this entity that somebody else created that is hovering above us and is actually, you know, collecting information from us without us wanting it. But if we kind of like really start to take ownership of data, and I mean, this also needs to pass from a lot of, I think, regulation and things that the companies need to do, but I think we're primed for these conversations. When when we will really understand that data are ultimately about us and, you know, the missing data, for example, then the uncertainty around data is as important as the data itself because it really talks about the whole context around data. Well, it will only be there, I think, that we will unlock the true potential of data. A really, really, I think, clear example is thinking about the data that we've been as a population presented with uh, through the COVID pandemic. I mean, we passed from a population where only a few of us cared about data to a population where everybody every morning would scroll charts and maps to make important decisions about their lives and whether, you know, to go out or not or to go back to the office or not. In this moment in time, we also need to uh, ask ourselves as, you know, a general population consuming data critical questions about once more this chart that I'm presented with every day about the number of cases I mean what is the context around that what how many positive tests have been made here and you know the timeline starts on March 15 but the timeline goes way back and there's so much that we don't know about before so if only we could render the uncertainty of what we don't know in the way that we represent data and I'm not saying that we need to make up quantities but you know really share what is that is like a clear number and what is 
that might be not known, well, only there people can get a big picture and, again, unlock the potential of this data to help us be more human. Yes. I, I think that's a really fascinating need to render the uncertainty as part of the complexity of data. Because it's so often it's presented as like, here's all the information we have. So this is this is finite and this is opaque in terms of the conclusions we're drawing. But the uncertainty is a huge part of it. It is. And especially, you know, when we see even think about the elections results in a way when we have these very sharp charts that look so precise about the percentages, you know, of, say, one candidate winning versus the other. I mean, these are polls. We can't render these data sets as so precise, like if it was the true reality and like if we interview the 100 percent of the population. And I think sometimes when we see a chart, we think that is more real and finite and final as it actually is. So this is this is why I think there's so much potential for design, I think, to help um, everybody become more data literate um, in a way. I agree. And I'm so excited you're doing this work. <laughs> <laughs> My main question before we let you go is how can we support this work that you're doing in data humanism? How can we find out more information? How can we direct our energies to sort of add to the momentum? Yeah, just start to think as data as the beginning of the conversation and not the end. And start to ask yourselves in every moment, in every day, when you're presented with a chart or some numbers, ask yourself critical questions about where do this number come from? Who do this number represent? Who has been left out? And this is not to become a critic of data visualization and somebody who's policing charts, but it's more about really understanding, you know, how you should take that information uh, as a critical one for your life. And more and more, I think gaining new knowledge passes from asking ourselves critical questions. And that's that's what I would uh, invite everybody to do. And also maybe start thinking about data as a fun think that as a designer, you can um, add to any projects. I mean, really, any pattern that you design can be made from data that carries an important message behind. So I'm also like on the completely other end, uh, if you're a designer and you're intrigued to, uh, to work with data, start thinking about incorporating it on a small project, I'd say. I love it. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your story and for the good work that you're doing. And this has been really wonderful. I truly appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. To see images of Georgia and her work, read the show notes. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Clever on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. If you would, please do us a favor and tell your friends about us. We're passionate about these stories, and we want to share them far and wide. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2BDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, Production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 